I, I, you know, I didn't mean to start talking about Elon Musk. Somehow that just happened. But let's go ahead and start there because you you had something to say about the guy. Well, I, I think that Elon Musk is a genius. I mean, he's a great world-changing genius. He's nutty, but if you read the biographies of all the great inventors, they're all peculiar. Yeah. And and this is what's so odd about celebrity in general. It's the quirkiness and the uniqueness uh, and the fact that, uh, you know, you know, an artist of any ilk is coloring outside the lines of traditional social mores. That's what we are attracted to. And then at the same time, we want them to be, you know, leave it to beaver and we want them to be, yeah. you know, father knows best. And, and, and that's, you don't get that. Thomas Edison was a very peculiar person. The Wright brothers were very peculiar, but what they were were artists who just worked in physics and machinery or electricity uh, instead of paint or film or uh, you know music. They 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 see the world differently. And Elon Musk is certainly in that category. And forget Tesla and all of the other sidebar stuff. His space program alone is extraordinary. Watch the videos of what he's doing. I mean, those rockets that are landing back on their launch pad look like yeah. those 1955 movies that we grew up with. I know. You're right. That is amazing. It's like, why couldn't NASA figure out how to do that? Right. Did, did they even yeah. try? <laughs> and he yeah, he just li- he just lives in a different world his in his head. You know, there's yep. a world inside of his head that is uh so much more complex than the than the world that he has to put up with outside when he, you know he's uh, taking a break. Uh, it's it that's the that's the kind of thing that amazes me. It's true. It was true of Steve Jobs as well. I mean, Steve Jobs was not you know banging out code, but what he was doing was he was envisioning he was envisioning new realities, and then he was collecting talented designers and engineers who could bring this, but the vision was his. And that was true for Edison. Edison in the beginning did was in the lab and he was testing filaments to make the light bulb work and a lot of other things. But then he became a major entity where he employed hundreds and hundreds, thousands maybe even of people. And he would say, you know what we could do is we could have a thing that does something like this and then people would go to work on tests. It doesn't diminish the accomplishment. The bottom line is the world is completely different post Edison. It's completely different post Orville and Wilbur Wright. And it's completely different after splitting the atom and it'll be completely different with the internet and beyond. Yeah. How do you know all this stuff? That was the thing that always amazed me when I was working with you. So I would listen to you on the radio and it's like, how how does he know all this stuff? I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you, okay? Um, and I'm not asking you for any opinion, and I'm not even offering an opinion. I also loved Larry Elder, who worked with us on KABC at the time. Uh, I thought he was fascinating and really well-spoken, very articulate, powerful, and all that. But he came up with facts and statistics. I just go, come on, you're making that up as you go along. But but you always, you always talk about things in broader terms. That I just wonder, you know, it's like hey, you spend the, in your entire life just reading stuff. I do read a lot, but, you know, you, you latch onto the key point, which is broader terms. You see, that's where Larry went wrong. He was being specific and people can track that down if you stay in broad terms. You know, <laughs> no, I, you know I always write it off to 
uh, heroic unemployment, years <laughs> when I had nothing to do. So I would sit there and I would read. I remember, Dave, this has got to be 25 years ago. I bought a book for 50 cents at a tag sale, totally based on the cover. And the title of the book was A Brief History of Norway. And it was published in 1950. <laughs> and I remember thumbing through this thing. I'm reading this book. And I remember just like a lightning bolt saying, I may be the only person on planet Earth that is reading this book as we speak. And it's very rare that you have a unique perception <laughs> where out of 6 billion people, you are the only person engaged in a specific activity. But, but that gives you an indication of how eclectic and odd my taste could run in terms of reading stuff. And, and one thing about history, when you read a lot of history, especially American history, because it is a linear progression from George Washington to Joe Biden, it goes all, you can't knock any of them out unless they all build upon each other. Their lives tend to overlap. So as a result, if you read a lot of books, it, eventually some of it sticks because you've encountered you know, the greatest hits a number of times. So, you know, if you read one book on something, then it's possible a lot of it flies in one ear and out the other. But if you read a bunch of books in the same general area, then you kind of have the stories crisscross and some of it stays in the old brain pan. <laughs> How old are you? I'm, I'll be 65 in November. Oh, my gosh. That's exactly when my wife, Carol Ann, who you know, is also turning 65. Yeah, yeah, I'm getting all kinds of uh, <laughs> Social Security uh, and Medicare yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. supplements. So I'm six years older than you and wasn't as smart to begin with. I got some bad news for you. All that stuff that you're learning now, that wisdom of age, just as you're getting smart, it starts to fade and you you, know, you you lose track of it and you can't find your keys and you can't find your glasses and all that stuff. Well, that's, our, that's been happening for years. And Penny, my wife and I, we sit and we watch Jeopardy when Ken Jennings is hosting. <laughs> and this is how we play. This is how we play Jeopardy. We go, it's the guy, the guy who was in the thing. We saw that thing, you know that guy. <laughs> and that's, that, that's our answer to who is, you know, that's our answer to every question is, yeah. is we know the answer, but we just can't possibly pull up the actual name. I'm going to tell you up. something. I really actually think as I've gotten older now, uh, my previous professions as a TV writer and in radio, uh, I couldn't do, well, I couldn't do it for a lot of reasons. First of all, no one's asking me. And the second is, I do feel that I struggle for the punchline a lot more now. Like yeah. I can formulate it, yeah. but I can't say it as fast as I could when I was 35. And you can't do that when you're in a writer's room and there's yeah. 10 people competing to get the material in or you're on the air live, as you know. Yeah. Uh, if you think of a joke and then you can't think of the punchline, it doesn't play very well. Or, or you can't even think of uh, a, an, an important word in the telling of the story that leads up to the punchline. Exactly. Exactly. That happens yeah. all the time. It is so frustrating. You just took me uh, a couple of steps beyond where we were going to start, but that's okay. Uh, how did you how did you wind up uh, in L.A. working as a TV writer? That's why you moved from you started in New York. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. OK, I, well, I back up. There. Tell, tell, tell me about, you know, your your growing up, your kid, your childhood, your family, your school influences and all that stuff. Well, uh, I was born in, the, in on Long Island and uh, grew up uh, in a town called Great Neck, which was a blessing to grow up there. 
because Great Neck is a remarkable town, very strange place today. But when I was a kid, it was the perfect place to shape the life that I ended up desiring because it was essentially Beverly Hills way before there was Beverly Hills. In the 1920s, it was West Egg in The Great Gatsby. Fitzgerald wrote The Great Gatsby when he was living in Great Neck. So Great Neck was West Egg and Port Washington was East Egg. And uh, it was a place where the Marx Brothers lived and W.C. Fields and George M. Cohan and Ring Lardner and all of these great literary and show business figures. And they actually ran a train into Manhattan because it was only 19 minutes on an express from Great Neck to Penn Station. They ran a train on Wednesdays and Saturdays called the Matinee Express to bring the show folk into the city to do the matinee performances. So I grew up with Alan King, you know, on the other side of the street and Sid Caesar lived there and all of these people. So as a result, uh, while we didn't have you know, Beverly Hills wealth by any stretch of the imagination, in fact, the lights got shut off in our house because we didn't pay the electric bill, uh, which did irritated my mother profoundly. But uh but growing up in an environment where the arts were a big part of uh, of the culture was 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 a significant uh, factor. And this and New York City, I could see the Empire State Building in the fall when the leaves were off the trees. I could actually see the Empire State Building at night from the top of the block. So it was like this magnet that kind of had a pull that that's where the action was. And eventually, of course, I ended up in the city working for in an ad agency. And I worked in an ad agency because it was the closest thing I, I figured, well, they got cameras and they shoot things and you can learn how to do that. And that's essentially what happened. And while I was doing that line of work, I met Jack Klugman. Okay, wait, uh, wait, wait, Oscar wait. Madison. Hang, hang on a second. <laughs> You're running a little bit fast for me. First of all, just very quickly, were you a good student? Was What were your strong subjects? Was writing your passion? Is that something that yeah, we're really good I, at? I, I was a mediocre student because I was good in history and English, which you might expect. I was absolutely horrific in mathematics. Yeah. I tested in a 0.03 percentile in math, Dave. <laughs> I mean, this is why to this day, I am not allowed to take the checkbook out of the house. My <laughs> wife, I'm not authorized. My supervisor does not allow me to remove it from the house. Uh, terrible in math and, and marginally better in science, but not much. Uh, so, so, and so as a result, my academic performance was but words, on average. Words belong yeah. to you. If I could read it. And, you know, in math, the math that I did best in was geometry because you could read those things. You know, the problems were some were, but don't ask me, you know, what an isosceles yeah. triangle is because I don't know. But right. So but, anyway, so I, I'm sorry, I took you astray, but I would, I just wanted to know if you were. If you were one of those people, the reason I ask is because one of the recent interviews that I did, and she's fascinating, you might find her really interesting, is uh, uh, Ellen Jovin, who is the grammar table lady. She wanders around the country with her little fold-out table and sets it down someplace near a mall or a, a library, and the sign says, ask me your grammar questions. And uh, so we started talking, and you know, I, I explained to her how... I was always, always in school, a really good writer, but I can't figure out how to diagram a sentence and couldn't care no. less what the parts of speech mean and so forth. Was that you too? 
Yes, absolutely. It's totally intuitive. Uh, I, I, if you gave me a, a a fifth grade grammar test, I'd fail it. Yeah. Because I don't know what the present participle of anything is. I don't know right. what the past. I don't know. I don't even know what they mean. Right. And I'm utterly unconcerned to know. <laughs> <laughs> I get some gratification from that. Ellen, by the way, would just would would um, uh, celebrate that. She says, "You know what? It doesn't matter as long as you're communicating well, and if you're really talented at it, go for it." So anyway, I do please. I do know where to use an apostrophe though. <laughs> yes, that's relatively simple. Yeah. So anyway, where'd you go to college? I went to Stonehill College in Massachusetts. It's a a beautiful little uh, at the time I was there embryonic. Uh, post-war uh, liberal arts school about 20 miles south of Boston. It's blossomed in now in its, uh, what, almost 70th year, this beautiful, this beautiful, very successful place. I still have an amazing group of friends that I met there in the 70s that uh, whenever I don't get to see them very often because of uh, geography. Yeah. But, uh, but it was a great experience. From what I remember of it, it was college in the 70s, Dave, so... There yeah. are some foggy yeah. areas, like like all of sophomore year. But it was wonderful, <laughs> wasn't it? It was a wonderful. It was. It was. I, I don't think it's physically survivable and probably <laughs> indictable uh, yeah. in the modern era. But uh, all right. So, what was your goal? What was your plan in college? Uh, I I I had this notion that I wanted to be. I wanted to be first. I wanted to be W. C. Fields or Groucho Marx, and then I wanted to be. Uh, George S. Kaufman, when I learned that people wrote for comedians, then that's what I wanted to do. Now, I had no idea how to do that. But I'll tell you something that was very singularly important was the Dick Van Dyke show. And the Dick Van Dyke show was important for two reasons. One, the idea that that was a job, that people could get paid to write jokes Right. And and I would watch Maury Amsterdam lay on the sofa. The idea that there was a sofa at work was highly attractive <laughs> to me. And and that he would, you know, Mel Cooley would come in and he would insult his nominal boss. Right. These were very, very attractive features. <laughs> but the key was there was a writer on the Dick Van Dyke show who went to college. Excuse me, went to high school with my father. My father didn't go to college, but he went to high school with my father. And whenever his name would come up uh, on the screen, my father said, you know, I went to high school with that guy. And that was like, you mean like people from our world could yeah. actually enter that world? Yeah. So it was very formative. Uh, and uh, but that was kind of my 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 idea. But when you get out of college with a B.A. in English, uh, there's no show business office. You can't go to the, you know, show business and apply, yeah. fill out an application. So you have to kind of, everybody has to kind of find a different path in, which is what brought me to advertising. I figured, well, you write and they shoot things. So there's cameras and, and that's how I cross paths with Jack Klugman, uh, you know, from the odd couple and then later yeah. Quincy. And how did that happen? That brought me out. You were, you were writing ads. He was the corporate spokesperson for Canon copiers. They had little personal PC copiers, yeah. which was a thing back then. And uh, and anytime they they, they haven't new... improved, by the way. <laughs> no, no, all copiers are made to just break. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but he was the corporate spokesperson, and he would do 
commercials and personal appearances and sales films uh, that demonstrated the new product. And these films were little, anywhere from eight to 30 minutes in some cases. And nobody, none of the big time copywriters wanted to do it. They just wanted to do the splashy national TV commercials for their reels. Uh, and I said, well, I'll do it. And I, I ended up, it was basically getting paid to go to film school because they just give you actor, you could cast actors and you could write the script and then go shoot it. How old were so, you at this time? Oh, I was in my early 20s, so 24, something like that, 25. But Jack would do personal appearances for Canon. And I remember specifically, he was, uh, there was a big meeting down in Cancun, Mexico, and he had to give a speech. So I wrote the speech for him and it was peppered with, you know, jokes and, and he, it did really well. I mean, it, it, he got a lot of laughs and he was really happy about it. So uh, shortly thereafter, he told me about this show that he was going to do for NBC. Now, I knew I was going to see him again in about three or four weeks. And together with my friend Paul McDermott, we, we banged out a, a pilot script having never seen a television script in our lives. We didn't know what the format, we didn't know how to type it, we didn't know anything. But he read it and he liked it. And he says, well, if I sell the show, uh, I'll get you, uh, I'll hire you. And, and that show did not sell. But uh, I saw a little thing in the paper that Klugman back to NBC with a show called You Again, based on a British series. This was in 1985. And uh, I called Jack, I had his number, I called him. And he said, uh, and I, this was the one really actually clever thing that I did was I realized he was hemming and hawing about bringing me to California from New York. And I realized he didn't want the responsibility. Right. He didn't want to take the responsibility. This guy would quit a job and move to the other side of the country. So I said, Jack, I quit my job and I'm coming out whether you hire me or not. And he says, get here by Tuesday or whatever cool. day it was. That is great. That's yeah. very good. And I, and, and, and that show lasted long enough for me to figure it out a little bit anyway. It lasted long enough for me to figure it out enough to get a second job. Let's put it that way. Well, yeah, so, it gave you a resume, right? Well, it, 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 it gave me, we did 26 half hours. John Stamos was the other half before Full House. He was the, he was the other half. And John and I were the youngest people on this show. He's a little younger than me, six years younger than me, but we hung out a lot together then because, and now I live by the way, about maybe a hundred yards below the house that he was living in at the time. Really? But, uh, <laughs> but uh, we were the only, everybody else was sort of a contemporary of uh, Jack Klugman. Uh, and I was the youngest person sort of working on the show, uh, me and John, but, but, it, but it lasted long enough for me to figure out how to do it enough that I could get other jobs. Uh, so, and that lasted for a long, you know, for a while for, you know, until the radio thing came along. Okay. That is the next uh, transition. We're talking about what the late seventies. No, this was, this Early was 80s. the mid eighties. Oh, yeah. Like 86, 87. How, how in heaven's day, I mean, you're talking about, uh, going from, uh, you know, a degree in English to getting into television writing. How does that leap into having a radio show? Well, I mentioned before my obsession about the Wright brothers, which is one of those stories that I find to be nothing short of miraculous. I mean, that's, it always, the stories that, Superman never appealed to me. 
I could be Superman if the only thing that can kill me is kryptonite and it's not found on this planet. Yeah. All right. But <laughs> but to, to but to but to jump off a hundred foot high sand dune in a flying machine that you know is not right because you're working on it, not being able to ask another human being how to operate it and do that a thousand times in one summer alone is is an amazing feat to to actually invent the technology while also learning how to operate it and it could kill you every time you do this it's an amazing it's more impressive to me than superman bending steel with his bare hands so i was obsessed by that story and i wrote a piece on the 90th anniversary so that's 1993 uh I wrote uh, a piece for American History Illustrated on the Wright Bros that they put on the cover. It was the cover story. And uh, at the time, Ray Bream, who did overnights at KBC right. from midnight sure. to five for 30 years, uh, he was a pilot. And somehow he had seen the magazine article and invited me to come on the show to talk about the Wright Brothers for an hour. And, and I, amazingly, kind of uh, synchronicity, the night that I appeared on his show was the same night that an episode of Married with Children that I wrote was taped. So I went to the taping of Married with Children, went from the <laughs> studio to KBC for the midnight taping with Ray Bream or broadcast with Ray Bream. And he ended up keeping me for four hours, Dave. Can you imagine, which is why I loved overnight radio, the esoteric nature of the beast that you could have somebody prattling on for four hours about the Wright brothers and not exactly. So, yeah. uh, but when I was driving home, I thought, well, that's like the greatest job in the world. You can, there's <laughs> nobody, it's the anti-TV and TV, there were 500 people telling you how you should have done it and changed this right. and changed that. And there was nobody telling Ray Bream anything. Let me ask you something uh, about, I, let me ask you something about Ray Bream. What I heard, and I, uh, I listened to him a lot uh, in those days, but <clears throat> excuse me, I always got the impression. And then I heard later that a lot of times he was having a conversation with people. And in the meantime, he was working a crossword puzzle in the Los Angeles times, or just, you know, he, he was engrossed in a book that he was reading or something like that, really not paying attention to the conversations he was having. Am I wrong about that? Uh, I did not get that impression. I think that that was more Ira Fistel who used to come on before Ray, uh -huh. but Ira, had this astonishing ability. Ira was always doing a crossword puzzle or doing something independent of the conversation. Yeah. But it was like his brain was bifurcated where he could, could he could concentrate on two things. Well, it's kind of like doodling though. It's just doodling, right? Yeah, that's all it was. It was just some occupation. Whereas what impressed me about Ray Brame, uh, there were a lot of things that impressed me. He was the most in the day before the internet, and this is very hard to fathom, even for us having, yeah, you know, yeah. but but in the days he had an AP, he, he had an AP wire service machine in his house. Uh, and he would come in with the with the paper with the dots that you'd tear off on both sides, the linotype. Yeah. And he would come in with it because everybody else was basically doing yesterday's news you'd come in with the newspaper and cut articles out of the newspaper right. but you know the news cycle had moved on but he was on a wire service you know schedule and because he was a ham radio operator he did some really remarkable things i remember that uh he would uh the last very last show that he did at kbc when he retired there was a big blow up with north korea and he had had um 
a relationship with Lloyd Bucher, who was the commander of the uh, Pueblo, yeah. which was captured by the North Koreans many, many moons ago. So he would just call up Lloyd Bucher and fold him into the show. And meanwhile, he used to monitor, because he was a ham operator, Radio Pyongyang, and then he would play tapes of this stuff on the air, these English translations, very badly translated by propaganda tapes from North Korea when it was totally mysterious. And um, uh, he did the same thing with, uh, he did a simulcast with, what's his name? Uh, the Russian journalist who worked with, uh, I'm blanking on his name right now, who, who uh, worked with, uh, you see, here we go. Here, here's where the 65 year old brain doesn't work. That's right, yeah. Uh, but he used to do a simulcast with Moscow. Mm. Uh, and this is was profoundly fascinating because nobody else was doing that. Nobody. So, well, at the so time, it, was was it, it seemed impossible, right? I mean, Vladimir Posner. Vladimir Posner was the okay. guy. Okay. Yeah. The Soviet Union at the time, there was no, there was no way to have interaction with people there. Right. And there were times when, where uh, Posner had said things and it would get real quiet and you hear clicking and, and Ray would say, Vlad, have we gone into an area that could get you in trouble? <laughs> and he would say things like, I'd rather not discuss that. And they would just shift. So it was, it was kind of, there was always an ominous threat, not for Ray Breen, but on the other side of the line that Posner at the time, uh, and he ended up doing a TV show with Phil Donahue, but it was Ray Breen that brought him to America. Really. Wow. I had a, a similar show. I had a similar, uh, situation 1970 i don't know mid-70s some point uh, during the iran hostage crisis i had uh, and i don't even remember how this how i made this connection but there was a there was a guy in iran at the time who was willing to talk to me on the radio in sacramento and uh, he told me all kinds of inside stuff and we always tried to keep his his uh, identity somewhat secret, and I, but but we we happily told his name, and the guy, uh, gosh, and I, you know, like you, I can't remember now. Uh, the guy got assassinated. The guy wound up dead, not for talking to me, I'm sure, but uh, those were interesting connections to be able to make that kind of connection in uh, you know in the world at that point. And we don't even think about it now. I mean, the other side of the world. And, and, and you know, this is one of my many half-baked theories on why the world is the way it is today. But I do think that the internet uh, eliminated geography, the meaning of geography. Yeah. And, and, and although it's 114 out here in Southern California, and it has been for 10 days, so geography has something to do with the yeah. way we're living. Yeah. But, uh, but, but kids are growing up today playing you know, video games with friends who are around the world, literally around right. the world. So they're they're liberated from the confines of their hometown if their interests take them someplace else. And one of the one of the uh, unintended consequences of that is that I think that the allegiance to the nation state is diminished. You know, those of us who grew up saying the Pledge of Allegiance and saluting the flag and all of those things. It's not that there aren't young people who don't have the same connection to place, but this is a global phenomenon. In fact, it was a cab driver in Denmark who actually told me that opened my eyes and, oh, the young Danes, they don't care about Denmark. And, and I realized that the same thing that we're feeling, that this connection 
of the generations to America is fraying is happening globally mm-hmm. because people's interests can be anywhere. If whatever you're into, it, you're not limited by your geographical location. And, and it's a pretty profound change, uh, I think, anyway. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, you know, for so long, people have raved against the concept of a global government or, a, you know, one world government. One, but it seems really kind of inevitable, doesn't it? Yeah, it, d- it does to me. Uh, and the battle is whose government? You right. know, what kind right. of government is it going to be? But it's very, it, it, it's a real interesting phenomenon to witness that, that, uh, and it's, it's beyond, and I think that it certainly goes to the political divide in America today where. Uh, and I don't. And I, I will do anything I can in life to avoid discussing contemporary politics. But I do think that the flag itself has become a one-party symbol, which is sad because it shouldn't be. But 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 in in one way, one side walked away from it, and another side claimed it. And now I, I've actually had friends who have said they won't fly the flag because they don't want people to think that they voted for Trump. Right. And I said, well, then then it's a Trump symbol. Yeah. You know, if you're walking away from it and won't claim it as your own. But but, but it goes bigger than that. This, too, shall pass. Uh, you know, Biden and Trump will go away. And but this is a bigger issue because it's really about do you feel that you are a a, a that your country is your homeland? And this is something that some people feel very passionately, and I do, I certainly will go to my grave as an American, but I don't know that two generations after that that same connection is there. And it's not just America. As I said, I think it's a global phenomenon. Exactly. I mean, you look at what's going on at our Southern border and here I sit in Texas while uh, Governor Abbott is shipping as many people as he can to Washington and New York. Uh, you know, and seriously, we're seeing people in this state who are struggling just to just to keep their their world held together because people are coming across the border illegally. And the United States is opening the door, ushering them in and saying, good luck to you now. Um, but it does make you stop and think, well, uh, well, first of all, why why is it we're the only country in the world that seems to be doing that? And secondly, maybe, you know, maybe borders are something uh, that will soon be relegated to the past. Well, I, I, I could see that happening. I mean, that was kind of what happened with the creation of the European Union. And, yeah. you know, there's certainly Europe, there's very little distinction. I mean, you can sit in a cafe in Belgium and the back legs of the chair in France. In the front legs of a chair in Belgium, you know, I mean, so literally, it's like you can go to four corners where, you know, yeah. the states come together and you can have a foot in two different states at the same time. Uh, or or if you bring your dog, all four states at the same time. Uh, but 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 it's it, I don't know. I don't know where that goes. Here's one thing I absolutely know. It's not going to be my problem. Nobody's asking right. me. Uh, You know, I could have all the theories about this stuff and try to reconcile it from my own understanding. But this is one of the things that I think that people our age in particular, Dave, struggle with this. How can this happen? 
Right. And what are we going to do about it? And the truth is, we're not going to do anything about it because exactly. <laughs> the young people, it's their future. Yeah. And they will decide. It's their They're going to decide. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. It's your son's time and my son's time and their son's time. And I take I take a great sense of uh, satisfaction in that. You know, every morning I wake up and I go into a radio station and I talk about all the crap that's going on in the world. And I offer a lot of opinions, but I walk out of there at nine o'clock going, man, I'm glad I don't have to think about that anymore today because it's up to them to figure it out now. I've done and, my and, time. Right. And, and, and they, they will figure it out. And, yeah. and some of it is going to be wonderful. Some of it won't be wonderful. And some of it isn't wonderful. They'll have the same well, kind of problems we had, but just different problems. Right. And, and things happen faster. And uh, remember when you were a kid and you went to a record store. You went to a record store to buy the latest Beach Boys 45. Yeah. And they had a thing called a section, a little tiny section called world music. And <laughs> world music was essentially uh, Brazil 66. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> it, it was a real whisper thin, maybe a Montavani record or something like that. It was a very, very whisper, tiny section. And now you can go online and you can listen to anything and and the beauty of that is that the cross-pollination of ideas is incredible. The downside of it is we've become kind of a Tower of Babel where we don't have, and how many times have old disc jockeys talked about if the Beatles came along today, the Beatles would be a very successful uh, act. They would never have had the cultural reach that they had in a day where everybody's eyes were on the Ed Sullivan show at the same time because there was nothing else. You know, it was up against nothing. And apples and oranges. Yeah, I mean, it's you, a totally you, different world. You can't. Yeah, exactly. You're talking about uh, uh, the reach because of the internet and social media and so forth. Uh, the Russian people are starting to understand that uh, you know Putin's incursion into into Ukraine was crazy. Uh, you you can't even keep China out of the internet. As hard as they're trying, they can't. They can't stop no. people from interacting with other parts of the world, and that's wonderful for all the problems that we have with the internet and social media. You know, it it's it's allowing ordinary people to get to know each other a little bit, at least. Well, it it, it to use the uh, sort of a Time Magazine phrase, it democratized everything. Yeah. Uh, and, and some of it is fantastic and some of it is awful because, I mean, at the same time, you know, in our phones, we have basically all the knowledge of mankind in this little device. Uh, but, you know, people can also use it if they're a pedophile to yeah. lure kids into trouble or terrorists or hate groups or whatever, or to just spread BS, you know, to just it's yeah. like just stuff we got to hack our way. Through. You know, look, you and I have been in the opinion business for a very long time. And uh, I love opinions that are articulated well, but I don't want to drive over a bridge that was built on an opinion. I would like somebody to know how to work a slide rule. Uh, <laughs> and this is where it becomes a problem because with all of this noise, we still have to have some kind of channel markers to run a country of the size of a continent with a third of a billion people. Right. And that's where consensus is very difficult in an age where people have their own facts, where people just believe 
not just a different opinion. They don't agree that two plus two equals four in many cases. Right. And that makes it really hard. I, I am hopeful, really optimistic that, that things like Facebook and, and Twitter is uh, as, much, uh, as much evidence as there is to the contrary. I kind of think that even people who have always been, uh, you know, in, encased in concrete as far as their opinions and their beliefs are concerned and their values are even starting to open their minds a little bit and starting to wonder if all this crap that they read isn't only partly true, if that, and start to learn to, uh, you know, Google for yourself. You know, go looking for other sources of information and see how much of this is true. You know, open up your mind, have a little conversation, because at this point, we're still in the early stages. And it's just like, yeah, well, you're full of shit. No, yeah, well, you're full of shit. But I'm, I think that's going to ease up a little bit as we get a lot, as we all get a little bit tired of it. I, I, I believe you might be right. And here's, here's the, here's my analogy. When, it, when cable television showed up, for the first time. There was a period of about three years where as people got home box office when they started and they were staying up all night and there were breasts on TV and people were watching <laughs> it. They were stumbling into work at, you know, bleary-eyed because they had, you know, the local station hadn't played the national anthem and gone off the air at midnight right. or after Johnny Carson. And then eventually it got incorporated into the ebb and flow of your life in a proper proportion. And maybe that will happen, but there is something about, we've always had crazy people who spouted crazy stuff sure. across the political spectrum. The difference is it's relentless. It's 24 seven, it's on Christmas morning, you can be enraged because you read something that someone posted. And that's where as a human being, we have to, we, we cannot live our lives at the speed of the internet. It, it's physically, we are biologically incapable of doing that. Uh, and we are subjected to a tremendous amount of of outright lies, and then just people who have things wrong. And that's where it's corrosive. Uh, Hannah Arnott said famously years ago that uh, the result of being lied to constantly is that you believe the lies, it's that you believe nothing. And at some point we have to believe in something. Otherwise, how do we interact with each other? Yeah. And, and and that's why I think we see smaller and smaller communities in the internet. You can find, I have all kinds of obscure uh, interests, esoteric interests. Like I love, I showed you my Dallas Chaparral's ABA t-shirt. Yeah. I love the old ABA. I was a huge fan of the ABA, the American Basketball Association from 1960 with the red, white, and blue ball before Dr. J. And well, I can go online and I can wallow in film clips and, and people trading stories. And I went to the 50th reunion in Indianapolis in 2018, and it was just a blast. But if that's what you want to do, you can retreat into your interests and never be subjected to anything else. Yeah. And, and that's the risk. And that's where I think the divisiveness is, you know, people who just want to hit the I hate Trump button or the I love Trump button and dismiss everything else. Well, how do we get past this then? How do we get to, because we got multiple time zones and a lot of people and we got to have an air grid and we, you know, we got to have an air traffic control system. We have to have things that we all use. Right. 
So I, think I don't we, know. I, I don't know what the answer is. I think how we get past that is that you have children who go, you know what, dad, I'm sorry, but you're full of shit. You know, yeah. <laughs> we don't think that way. Uh, and hey, they well, are saying that. Yeah. They are saying that. Yeah. Young people are, are, our oldest, uh, is a, uh, an entrepreneur and a rather brilliant one. And he's been, he's changing the world through his own ideas and technology. And he pays attention to politics peripherally, but he is changing the world without running for state assembly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's employing people and he's making lives better. And, and I think that a lot of young people, and I asked my, my wife's niece, a very bright, grew up in a political family, very bright young woman. And I asked her if her friends were going to vote and how involved in the process were they. And she says, well, I am because of the family I grew up in. But most of my friends uh, are too busy doing things yeah. to waste their time with the nonsense that they're subjected to. And it yeah, that, and that, that, that takes us back to, uh, you know, the, the political situation in this country, the fact that we have a country and will we future, in the future have a country or is it going to be one world government? Can you give me just a quick break? I got to go to the bathroom, but I want to come back. I want to get back. I want to talk to you about your musical taste. I want to talk to you about your novel. And I don't want to take the rest of your day to do all of that. I'm just looking at my notes here. May I jump in real quick to ask yeah. you a few things? Yeah, please. Um, I, I want. I just would like to go on record as saying what a wonderful experience it was working with you for the years that we had together. Oh my god! And that, uh, and that, uh, because you were a, a wonderful writer uh, yourself. Uh, one of the things that you did better than anybody I've ever worked with by a country mile is you're the best writer of kicker stories that I've ever read. (laughs) And it's a natural flair for for comedy writing that you know how to boil that down so that only the essential words are there and it makes the kickers kick. Uh, And it's a great talent. It really is. And it was just it was just fun. We never had an unpleasant uh, moment on that show. Thank, Thank you so much for saying that. Um, it's what I, it's, it is actually what I think I do best. There's just not a great market for writing kickers. Um, I know, but they, (laughs) on a morning show, they, they, where the news is often very heavy to have that as one of the tools in the toolbox is a blessing, especially for a morning show, because, you know, otherwise people want to run the hose from the exhaust pipe into their bedrooms and just, you know, they have to start their day every day, which is horrible grimness. Right. Uh, let me, let me ask you about your, your transition then out of radio. Um, uh-huh. How did how and why did you move on from radio? Well, I did for a couple of reasons. Once I turned 60, I really started to think, how much more time do I have where I am viable in any area of life? Uh, yeah, and, 60 will do uh, that to you. Yeah, that, was, that had a lot to do with it. What also had a lot to do with it was the, the political rancor in the country had gotten to the point where uh, – I didn't feel like we were accomplishing any. I was personally accomplishing anything. And because, uh, you know, I was a lifelong Republican who wanted to talk about the border and all these issues I talked about endlessly, but I didn't like Donald Trump. I didn't like 
I didn't like him personally, and I didn't like him. I didn't like what he was, what he represented, his assault on, to me, the foundational institutions of the country. Yeah. Uh, and 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 that was that put me out of sync with our audience because the talk radio audience, as you know, is dominated by by right leaning people, which is fine, except they they as an audience have a right to hear what they want to hear. Mm-hmm. And we are we are we are entertainers, despite what the fact that the material we work with sometimes may be ripped from the headlines. Uh, which is an antiquated phrase, by the way, because nobody's ripping headlines anymore in the <laughs> digital age. But uh, but but so I think that my contract was up, and uh, I had other things that I do want to do and did want to do, principally uh, the the novel that we'll talk about in a bit. And I thought they I really don't fit this anymore. It's not a great fit. Uh, and and I think that they would have had to have replaced me, if not that year, within the next year or so. Mm-hmm. Because the bottom line is, in AM talk radio, you're either on the Trump train or you're not. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that's just the way it is. Uh, so so I, I just thought, I've had a great, KBC in Los Angeles was fabulous to me. It, you know, we put a kid through college. We've, we've lived our lives and made a lot of things possible for us. I worked with great people. Why be bitter about it? Just pull the plug on it. Just just say, look, at the end of 2018, it's the midterm elections were over. We're steaming towards another. Let's just, you know, you guys do what you need to do for your business and I'll go take care of my business. And And so it ended beautifully, I think. Yeah. And and uh, with with zero hard feelings, and uh, as a result, I really consider myself one of the lucky ones because you know, frankly, the business can be cruel, and people yeah. can get shown to the curb uh, when they don't have a plan B, which is ugly in any walk of life, not just ours. Right. My uh, my my friendship with you and our relationship is really strange in the radio business because I came in to do the morning show on KABC. Right. Uh, and uh, I was, I was not prepared for it. I was not ready for it for a lot of reasons that are neither here nor there, but you were our lead in because you were working the overnight show. Right. And you, you just charmed the hell out of me. I mean, not only personally, but the way you were on the air, the fact that you were playing, uh, you know, musical uh, standards from the from the forties, the uh, Frank Sinatra stuff going in and out, and and I just thought, man, this this guy, this guy has really got it right. Um, but I was doing news for you when you were on the morning show, when you retired, when you left, or. Mm-hmm. Or they ran you. Well, out. I got fired so, that was once. The first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got fired once. Right. And to show, let me jump in real quick because this yeah. is anybody who's listening to this. How crazy the business! So I, I got fired from KBC doing the morning show. Yeah. And literally three months later, the same company corporation that fired me put me on nationally. <laughs> right. Which we started this thing called Red, which was we we did a national version of Red Eye Radio, which is, still exists, 
but it had been my local overnight show in KBC. So the same company that fired me in Los Angeles put me on with New York as our flagship, WABC. Uh, and then, of course, we I think we had 290 stations, and then they sent me back to Los Angeles to do the morning show. So go figure that one out. Yeah, it's nutty. Let me ask you about Red Eye Radio, okay? I work in Dallas. Uh, I work in the same building where WBAP is just down the hallway from us about 20 steps. And they still run uh, the overnight syndicated show, Red Eye Radio, which is primarily two really good guys talking uh, ex- exclusively about uh, uh, conservative politics. And they're talking to primarily truck drivers and so forth. And they call their show Red Eye Radio. And it was my understanding somehow, I don't know even how I came by this information and it's probably wrong. Did you copyright, did you trademark that phrase and sell it to the corporation or what? No, uh, this is what happened. I started calling it Red Eye Radio and I always joke about this because I thought, you know, It'd be like a red eye flight. Yeah. But then it turned out that at three in the morning, the audience is either drunk or stoned. So their <laughs> eyes are red. But uh, but what I ha- what happened was they moved me. I got moved back to mornings from the overnight show, the national overnight show, uh, very quickly. And as a result, the the corporation did not have time to rebrand the show. So they just wanted to keep that the same because they already had the network. They already had like 200 plus stations. Uh, My only connection was I owned redeyeradio.com, which is really what they wanted. Oh, I see. So so they kept it and they paid a very small fee. Yeah. The use of redeyeradio.com, which I don't own anymore. I think they do. Oh, okay. I was fine with because I don't even think about it. I don't. I don't remember. Uh, one thing that's great though is my my producer on the national version of Red Eye Radio, Brian Kane, is still working on Red Eye yeah. Radio, which I'm happy to see. Love we're Brian. Bu- we're buddies. We are buddies. Yeah, he's a great, a great, quirky, funny, uh, funny guy. I, I just adore him. Yeah, he's been helping me out with my website, by the way, and I need to get some more help from him. Um, <laughs> I want to talk to you about your music your musical taste, because it was so unique. As I said, uh, I would come in and hear, uh, I would hear Frank Sinatra. I would hear Dean Martin. As a matter of fact, uh, Amy Lewis and I stole the Dean Martin, one Dean Martin song that we ran every Friday morning at 8 a.m. And that was Good Morning Life. You know, that music just was just so fabulous. And I know, and I knew at the time that we were not hitting the documentary, the the, uh, uh, target demographic by playing that stuff. You were doing it over in the overnight because you loved it and that was fine. And probably most of the people who were listening to you were, as you said, either drunk or stoned or maybe just old and they couldn't sleep. But your taste seems to have always run in that direction toward the older yeah. the older music and, uh, and especially the jazz classics. You did the Jack Sheldon documentary. I remember you playing music by and talking with people like Lorraine Feather and Tierney Sutton. Talk about your music a little bit. Well, uh, uh, you know, I was a talk show host who played too much music. <laughs> and every program director would say, would you stop playing that stuff? And uh, But but here's the thing. It, it was It was just one of the things that I felt was I have a passion for it. And I believe that enthusiasm is contagious. And 
in the overnight show, because the show, we would talk about everything and anything. We didn't have really topics except for rare instances. If I had an in-studio guest, well, we'd talk about that for an hour. But we could literally change topics from call to call. And it, the music uh, was a buffer zone that helped deflate anger. Uh, there's no reason in the world. I don't have Yasser Arafat on line three. We're not going to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict at 2.20 on a Tuesday, right? So we're coming out of a commercial break. If we play a, a piece of bumper music and we play it a little longer, maybe 40 seconds instead of 10 seconds and yak, uh, it, it's just sort of like a palate cleanser uh, and, and a chance to reset. And as it turns out, Dave, I found that it was without question the most popular part of the show. There's no question about it. And I had this argument 10,000 times with program directors say, you know, the motion picture industry spends millions to, to, to brand their movies and television shows with a sound, yeah. to create a sound. And they frequently go to the American Songbook for that sound. And we're able to do this for nothing. And you don't want me to do it. Uh, <laughs> and I would print out, hundreds of emails saying, what was the name of that song that you played uh, that went something like this? Hundreds of them. And it wasn't old people who were hearing Benny Goodman. It was young people who were hearing right. Benny Goodman maybe for the first time. And it was old people who were hearing Nora Jones for the first time. Uh, so that's, it went in both directions. Uh, you know, all of a sudden there's a new record out by a young performer, like right now, we, my wife and I, Penny and I went to the Hollywood Bowl to see Billie Eilish uh, a couple weeks ago. 18,000, 17,500 people, and Billie Eilish was there to do a tribute to Frank Sinatra and Peggy Lee. And Billie Eilish came out with Debbie Harry of Blondie fame uh, and sang, is that all there is? And then Billie Eilish sang Fever with mm. Christian McBride playing the Joe Mondragon bass lines. Uh, and the place went crazy. And here is Billie Eilish, who has just turned 20, but her musical curiosity and taste has got her conversant in the vocabulary of songs. Uh, and, and, and I looked at that as saying, well, here is this young uh, talent, and she is a talent, she's a real talent, uh, who is introducing this music to the next generation and will keep it alive. And maybe they won't know Peggy Lee's name, but the, the sounds won't be foreign because she's going to fold it into her work. And that's how it works. So the music that I played, you know, my brother uh, was a drummer in a rock band and uh, he played Let It Be so many times that he literally wore the grooves out on two uh, records. He had to buy it twice or three times. He <laughs> wore it out. And to this day, if Hey Jude comes on, I love the Beatles, but if Hey Jude comes on, I break out in hives because <laughs> like, I start confessing to crimes I didn't even commit, you know? So, and I don't know why, and I think it came out of my interest in it came out of, again, going back to the Marx Brothers and the fact that Irving Berlin wrote songs for their Broadway shows. And I, so I, the Gershwins were in that orbit. So I started, when, when everybody else was listening to rock, I, I, it was foreign to me. I was listening to the wrong stuff at the wrong time. What's fascinating is that now at this age, I'm listening to all the stuff I should have been listening to 45 years ago. I said, hey, this is really good. You're an Aerosmith <laughs> fan now. <laughs> all of a sudden, I could listen to it with totally fresh ears. 
but there are some songs, of course, you know, if I hear Hotel California one more time, I'm going to put a slug in my head. I mean, it's <laughs> like there are some songs that are played. It's like, oh, God, I don't want to hear. There are even some Sinatra songs and uh, that I don't need to hear. I've got you under my skin anymore. Or, or Fly Me to the Moon. Yeah, although that is so good that I'm kind of okay with it. <laughs> but, but, but there are some songs that I love them and they're classics for a reason. But I want to go, I go deeper into the catalog. And I am happy to tell you that tomorrow at 11 o'clock Pacific, I am taping one hour on Sirius XM, Seriously Sinatra, oh. hosting, playing favorites, where they bring in a guest disc jockey. Tomorrow being, so excited. excuse me, tomorrow being September 7th. Yeah, although I don't know when it plays. They pre-tape these, so I'm not okay. sure okay. when it will actually air. Just, but they can, run them. They repeat it. Yeah, we can stuff, search so. it. That's cool. Great. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. It's the only radio job that I've actually wanted is to go in there. And it's only a one-off, but that's what makes it fun. Pick 14, 15 songs. You tell people why these mean something to you. And you just play them loud. Clearly, so. Frank Sinatra was one of your favorites. I say that just based on how often I heard a Sinatra song yeah. when I was working or coming into work or something. My wife would say an irritating obsession. Ah. She has to deal with. <laughs> I want to talk about her, too, for a couple of minutes. But uh, as far as Sinatra is concerned, two things. Did he was he the best phraseologist singer that ever existed? Did he did he, you know back phrase and and move around within the song better than anybody well, else in history well he would probably have told you that billy holiday because that's who he got his phrasing from or even tommy dorsey the trombonist which is you know frank spent time there watching tommy dorsey breathe and how he played these long phrases musical phrases on a trombone where you have to you know and he learned to breathe watching Dorsey. So, but, but here's, here's my, my obsession with Sinatra has nothing to do with the Rat Pack. It has nothing to do with any of the mafia stuff or any of that stuff, JFK. And I really don't care about that. What I love about him is that he set the standard for standards. It's not just the vocal ability when he was in his prime, the fifties into the sixties, the mid to late, you can even say late sixties. I mean, he made that Joe Beam album in 67. It's a masterpiece uh, and introduced Bossa Nova largely to uh, the Western, to the Northern hemisphere. But uh, it's not just his singing. It's his vision. We were talking earlier about Steve Jobs or the Edison might have an idea and then go get people to execute that idea. Well, that was Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra totally controlled his work. So he picked the songs that he would sing. He would pick the arrangers and what tempos and what, what this is going to be a, a, a song with with strings. And this is going to be a song with dueling brass. And this is going to be his own producer. Well, he had producers, but nobody produced him better than he did. Yeah. Uh, and I got, I had the pleasure of meeting a lot of his sidemen, including some real important ones like Bill Miller, who was his pianist for 50 years. And I asked him one time, I said, when you left a session, like where you're recording one for my baby, and that's Bill on the piano. Uh, and I said, did you know that you were recording something that was a piece of essentially classical music, something that would outlive all of us? And he says, no, it was more like the clams, which was a musician term for a bad note. He goes, <laughs> you know, 
we'd, you know, sometimes we'd leave after doing something that wasn't very, and we said, well, the world didn't need that. <laughs> but if you look at the catalog of Frank Sinatra, there's very few Winchester cathedrals. There's very mm. few Mama Will Bark. And, and in fact, the ones that are dreadful, I actually have great affection for because, you know, he took a swing at something and it's just terrible. But there's so few of them. And that's what amazes me, because you listen to the Billy May arrangements of the Nelson Riddle arrangements or you go and get. Sinatra and Strings, 1961, arranged by Don Costa, and listen to every track, but specifically Come Rain or Come Shine, and it is an incredible masterpiece. And you think that was on jukeboxes. That was that was something people would put a, a quarter in on a jukebox in a bar. Dime. That was popular music, yeah. 1961. And it's it's astonishing musicianship. You uh, You and Penny put together the Jack Sheldon documentary. Yeah. Uh, the, first of all, that came out on DVD. Is it still available, you know, streamable yeah, it's, online, uh, something uh, like that? Thank you for that. Yeah, it's uh, it's still, believe it or not, there are people who still buy DVDs. Not a lot of them, but they're, yeah. it's on Amazon. They're trying to get good. The Jazz Odyssey of Jack Sheldon. And for younger people, Jack Sheldon was the voice of Schoolhouse Rock. He's singing yeah. Conjunction Junction and I'm Just a Bill. Fascinating guy who was one of the world's great trumpet players, literally one of them, played with everybody. And uh, from, you know, I played, you know, with Tom Waits and Crystal Gale on the soundtrack to, uh, uh, to the movie that they, so, uh, what was the name of that? Uh, from the Heart, uh, the Coppola picture, a beautiful soundtrack to, he started Benny Goodman, you know, from Benny Goodman to, you know, played with basically everybody. And he was a TV uh, actor but, and a movie actor as well. Yeah, he had his own TV series called Run, Buddy, Run in the 60s, yeah. done by the same people who did Get Smart and was in 40 or 50 movies. But uh, as a singer and trumpet player, he was astonishingly gifted, especially as a trumpet player. And wildly, recklessly, dangerously funny. Open for Lenny Bruce for six years. Uh, he was Lenny Bruce's wow. backup band. So there's a lot of stories that can't be repeated, even on a podcast or so. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but, but so we, we decided one day, let's point a camera at him and tell his story. And it's, you can get a digital download on Vimeo, by the way, uh, because now a lot of people, they not only don't want a DVD, they don't own a DVD player and the computer doesn't even have a slot for a DVD. Right. But but we made it in 2008 and it was a great experience. We got to meet all these incredible people besides the Clint Eastwoods and the Billy Crystals who were in it. But I mean, these musical giants like, you know, Johnny Mandel, who wrote the theme to MASH and wrote The Shadow of Your Smile. And uh, I mean, just astonishing uh, musicians. Uh, so so it was a great pleasure doing that. Uh, and by the way, I can't play a note of anything which is another reason why I had such passion for it, Dave, because I realized that somebody's got to be in the audience. And I had this little radio platform and the radio platform allowed me the opportunity to both meet people who, who could be in the documentary and also to pay for it because, you know, uh, but it was wonderful because, uh, you know, we knew enough about cameras from having worked in television for long enough that we were able to know how to do it at least in a but if you look at it it's in four three aspect ratio we didn't know about letterbox we didn't even think about it. it's not in an hd 
But it still sells. We ship, you know, five or six copies a month. Somebody clicks and we, I have to go to the post office and mail a DVD and, <laughs> you know, the downloads go out. So it's still out there. Again, that's called trying to get good. The Jazz yeah. Odyssey of Jack Sheldon. Yeah. Uh, you I'm, I'm curious about the, uh, the, the cover art where he's underwater playing the trumpet and there are very young children uh, scrambling toward him underwater. What is that all about? Well, Jack's mother was the pioneer of teaching babies to swim. And she had a very famous swim school in Hollywood called the Gen Love Swim Academy on Hollywood Boulevard in Western. And uh, she was very savvy, Jen Lovin. She built the pool and one wall had portholes. And so the parents could watch their kids underwater, uh, like kind of being in an aquarium. And the residual benefit of it was uh, that when Hollywood needed to shoot a pool scene, they would rent the location because they put the cameras through the portholes and shoot underwater without putting the camera in the water. Sure. It was also, by the way, the first integrated pool in Los Angeles. Uh, really? Uh, they taught uh, Nat King Cole's uh, kids to swim there because all the Hollywood stars after, it's a very kind of interesting showbiz story. When Lou Costello's son drowned in a terrible swimming pool accident in the late 40s, all the movie stars who had swimming pools wanted their kids to know how to swim. And Jen Lovin was teaching all regular folks, but a lot of movies, including Ronald Reagan's kids. I think both Patty Davis and Ronald Reagan Jr. were taught to swim at the, uh, at the swim school. But uh, <laughs> Natalie Cole was learned to swim at, uh, and Jack taught there as a, as a young man, he was a champion diver when he wasn't, you know, 300 pounds. And and he uh, he he taught there and uh, and was playing the trumpet and it was just blocks away from Capitol Records and Dave Cavanaugh who was the guy who signed Frank Sinatra to Capitol Records had heard that there's this trumpet player who teaches swimming right nearby so he sent Jack Marshall over to hear him and Jack Marshall said no he's good you should get him and that's kind of how we started getting record deals and then everything grew from there so so that's why. That uh, cover picture was shot in about 25 years before Nirvana uh, had their cover, yeah. the Baby in the Water. Right. Uh, they, they shot it in the swimming pool that his mom owned. Uh, wow. That is, yeah. That's a great, great story. Uh, I want to apologize to Penny. I know that uh, Carol Ann and I had a wonderful time one evening. We went out to uh, dinner with you and Penny. And uh, just had a great time, and we came home saying, "Oh, we've got to, we've got to spend time with them again." And we never have. We left, we moved, but uh, you know, it, it, she's a delightful person. She's also somebody that people have seen on TV and in movies, Penny Pizer. And uh, I would just like to ask you a little bit about her and how I remember listening to you doing the overnight show at times when you were when I was driving into work probably at KNX at that point. And uh, you would talk to her on the air. And it's like, she's up in the middle of the night and talking to you too. This is before you got married. Uh, what do you want to share about your relationship with Penny? Penny Pizer? Well, one is it survived me talking about her on the air because I would, I would, I would say inevitably, she mostly slept through the night and she loved me being on the air because uh, when I was on the air, she could turn me off or is it home? <laughs> right. stuck with it. But uh, but I, invariably, she would wake up in the middle of the night, turn the radio on, and I would be saying something outrageously untrue about her. 
I mean, <laughs> slanderously untrue about, you know, boozing it up or some something. And then she would call and to say, wait one second, Charlie. So there was a lot of that. Uh, but she, you know, was been an actress for many, many years, continues to act, as she says, when they let me. Uh, and was in a couple of very famous, All the President's Men was her first feature film with Dustin, seen with Dustin Hoffman and, uh, and The In-Laws with Alan Arkin and Peter Falk. And she did a picture with Charles Bronson and she worked, she worked a lot uh, in television series. And of late, which is very exciting, she, she, she's a, this sounds strange. She took a Shakespeare class a bunch of years ago and sort of, and one of the assignments of the class was to write a sonnet in the Shakespearean format of iambic pentameter. Uh, and she was very good at it. And she just kept doing and has written over 500 of them. And it's called Sonnets from Suburbia. And it's all about contemporary, our life, like getting patted down at the TSA <laughs> or, or the price of gas, but, or, or the kid that's kicking the seat on the, and singing Itsy Bitsy Spider on a five hour flight and the parents never shut him up, <laughs> but it's done in the Shakespearean format in iambic pentameter. Uh, so she, she turned this into both a book, which will be out at the end of this year, we're very excited about, and also kind of a stage performance piece where she has the Elizabethan costume, but she's wearing New Balance shoes and sunglasses. I've, and I've seen some of that. That yeah. wound up online somehow, somewhere. Yes, yeah, we posted a bunch of them. Uh, so that's she's been very busy doing that, and uh, and still goes out on auditions and does shows, you know, television shows, and when when as as she says, when they let her, uh, yeah. the acting profession. People have no idea how hard that life is. How did you meet? We met on the air. I was I was filling in for Tim Conway Jr. over at KLSX when they were at a talk station with Doug Steckler, yeah. who had been my writing partner for a number of years. And Penny Pizer was booked as a guest. And she had no idea who I was, but I knew who she was because my brother went to Colgate University with her brother. So I knew that Jim Pizer's, by the way, Jim Pizer is the Secretary of Education for Massachusetts right now. Oh, really? But uh, it's a high bar family, by the way, for, yeah. for there's no lazy people in that. Pizer family. <laughs> uh, but uh, she was booked as a guest and I knew who she was. I had seen her in All the President's Men and the In-Laws, which every comedy writer in the world has seen 500 times because it's genius. It was genius. Yeah, absolutely. One of the great comedies ever made. And, and we actually ended up with Alan Arkin doing an acting class in our living room one time, which was a whole mm. other experience. But uh, so I knew who she was, but she didn't know who I was. And but we we literally have a tape of us meeting. We literally I, our paths had never crossed when I was writing in the TV business. Uh, I was mostly working half hours and she had done the Tony Randall show as Tony Randall's daughter. But uh, Ken Levine actually worked with her, our buddy Ken Levine. Uh, but our paths didn't cross until uh, that night at KLSX. And Ken Levine is my next interview. Oh, great. I'm, yeah. I'm talking with him tomorrow, as a matter of fact. Oh, that's fun. That's fun. Yeah. yeah. All right. One final thing I want to know about is that that is your novel. I know, I know that you've been, uh, you've been working on it. Don't know anything about it. Uh, I know now by looking on your website, that it comes out in July of 2023. There's an actual Correct. specific date, I guess. 
Yes. Always amazes me how long it takes them to put books together. But it's oh, called- and this has been, yeah, this is this. I actually, I've only literally you're the first person I've been able to talk to. Uh, publishers control everything on in yeah. terms of release and all that. And while we signed the deal months and months ago and have been working on it for, you know, revisions over those months until the book, until the cover design is official. You can't really publicize a book because despite what that that total lie that people don't shouldn't judge books by the cover, people do judge <laughs> books by the of course, cover. Of course. And the do. publishers certainly know that. So <laughs> so uh, any mention of the book was embargoed until the cover art and literally today is the first day that I'm empowered to say anything about it. The book is called Frank Shadow and yes, that Frank is in it. But yeah. I will tell very briefly, the story was born uh, the day that Frank Sinatra died. I have a, a buddy of mine whose father died the same day Frank Sinatra died. And he was roughly the same age. They were both 82. And I thought one death is satellite news ricocheting around the world. And the other death is in the back by the mattress ads and the racing results. And you had yeah. to pay to put it there. So I was curious about the trajectory of lives, how one life can go this way and, and how we value that differently than the guy who's in the back of the paper uh, by the mattress ads and the racing results. And that was kind of the genesis. So the story is about this young uh, dissipated history professor who's listening to the wrong music, you know, pick yeah. me. Uh, he should be listening to somebody, you know, rock and roll, and he's not. And he goes home to bury his father, and he realizes he knows everything about Frank Sinatra, but his own father is a mystery. His inner life is a mystery. And he goes out to discover who his father was. And in the process of that, his own life unravels. And he uncovers a his father's deepest, darkest secret before finally uh learning to forgive both himself and his father, putting everything into context. That's essentially how Frank Sinatra appears in the book only as counterpoint. He's not, right. it's not about Frank Sinatra. He's just okay. sort of a counterpoint to the father's life. Yeah. So that's the story. It's called Frank Shadow. It's published by Greenleaf Books of Austin, Texas, and uh, will be out in July of 23. And I couldn't be more excited. Now, here's the thing that's frightening, Dave. I started this in 1998. So by the time it comes out, it will literally be 25 years uh, because I didn't know what the family secret was. I didn't know what the I, I could not come up with anything that worked for me. So I, it sat fallow for a long time. And then I was reading Rick, Rick Atkinson's World War II trilogy in volume three. And I said, this is it. This is what I have to do. And it had a lot to do with why I left radio, because I realized I had to go. And I, my last radio show was December 18th of 1998. I started on the book again on January 4th of 2019, a couple of weeks later, and have been working on it for the last four. And it'll be four and a half years when it comes out, which shocks me that it's taken that long, even after having worked on it all those years before. So I'm very excited about it. And uh, hopefully people will like it, but you know I don't have control over that. I got enough you know, trouble just talking to people like you who write books. <clears throat> and I've, I've, you talk about 1998. I started the novel in 1988 that I still have in the drawer, and I still poke at it once in a while. 
And the thing is that I don't have, I don't have the, uh, the, 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 the actual training, you know, I didn't go to any schooling or anything like that. Well, there's um, no str- training for it. I string words together right. really well. I string the words together. I'm really good at dialogue, but I'm horrible at uh, plot. And, you know, it, it is the, the problem is that is such a torturous process because as much as you can love the act of writing, there's nobody there to help you, to spur you on, to tell you you're doing great, to make you feel like anybody would be interested whatsoever in what you're doing. And eventually you get to a point where you're just wasting your time or you feel that way anyway. And I guess you definitely, you definitely feel that way. There's no question about it. You definitely feel that way. Uh, and, and and look, everybody who's ever tried to do this has had has had the same feelings. Uh, but here's what I learned: I learned a lot about writing, doing this, uh, and it's all a progression. I mean, you go from writing jokes, literally a one-line joke, yeah, to little sketches, to maybe a half-hour sitcom script. Then you learn how to write a feature film that maybe is 108 pages. And then maybe you start with short stories, which I really didn't do. Uh, but, you know, Jimmy, Br- I always like Jimmy Breslin talked about it. He goes, well, movies are easy. You only have to write in the middle of the page. With a book, you got to go all the way across the page. <laughs> uh, and, 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 you know, the thing is, there's a difference between, I, I don't think you should get obsessed. Anybody should get obsessed over plot. Because there's a difference between plot and story. I mean, mm. a plot, for instance, is, a queen kills a king. That's a plot. But a story is a queen kills a king who she loves more than anything in the world. Yeah. Now that's a story. It's about people. Yours, well, why would she do that? What yeah. drove her to kill the person that she, you know, now you've got a whole other, you know, it's not just this happens and that happens and this happens and that happens. And you can write a book with just the atmosphere with the, with the observations, you with still the feelings. Have, you, you, you still have to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. The Ideally, end can yes. get, it does help. get scuzzy. <laughs> it, do, it, it does help, but 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 for my for my book, I never worried about how I was getting out of it. I couldn't get to the end because I didn't have a compelling family secret, and and you know I tried for years, and everything was a square peg in a round hole. It was I was stealing ideas that I had seen before. And maybe I've stolen this one too. It's just that I can't, I don't remember ever having seen it uh, used in, in any context. And that really excited me. And once I had that, I couldn't wait to get back to doing it because I felt I know how to do this now. I, I have, and now of course I learned over the last four and a half years, there were a whole bunch of other things that needed to be done too. But uh but that was the biggie. And once, once that, uh, you know, you have that moment, it doesn't happen that often when you say, oh, I actually am in control of this now. So is this what you want to do now? What's well, next? I don't know. Uh, given how hard this was and how long this took, you know, yeah. my next one, I would be 90 on this time frame. Yeah. So, so I have to learn how to do it faster if this is going to be a regular activity. But but I and I've got a lot of there's an awful lot that's got to go between now and launching the book. And, you know, you know, I have to I'll be calling you saying, hey, can we could do this again, Dave, you yeah, know, next yeah, July? I love it. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, so, but seriously, I, I mean, you're coming up on 65. You got a lot of time left. What are you doing? What are you doing on a daily basis? And where are you going next? Well, I, I what I'm doing is I'm writing and I play a lot of old man softball. I broke my finger, had hand surgery. Now I can't bend my fingers anymore. I can't make a fist on my right hand anymore. Oh, gosh. These fingers don't close. That I stuff do migrates that. down to the center of your body and below. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know. Uh, we got grandchildren, which is a joy. And, you know, uh, so we got all those good things. And I, I'm, and I, you know, I've got the newspaper column that I still do every week for the, for the Southern California news group, you know, the LA Daily New York, news, New York I'm sorry, Los Angeles daily news. And it's, uh, and the orange County register. Yeah. And it's an excellent column. Look it up. Oh, thanks. Thanks. And, and, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, I, I got to tell you, I was shocked, really actually shocked when I realized that, uh, that I'm going into my fifth year of not being on the air, Yeah. that, that I worked on this book, all of 2019, all of 20, all of 21, all of 22 and into 23 when it finally comes out. And it just seems like it went by in a blur. So that tells me that I'm doing the right thing because I'm not bored. Yeah. That's a great attitude. I always just think time flies when you're getting old, but you're right. I'm not bored. That's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. What a delight. Thank you so much. This is a conversation that we tried to have in little bits and pieces at, uh, you know, restaurants in the middle of the day, in the middle of the morning, uh, brunch time and so forth. Uh, you're a special guy. I've always admired I, you and I appreciate okay, your friendship. You're, you're 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 a gracious and lovely person, you and Carol Ann. And I never had an unpleasant experience in all my time with you. And hopefully, I didn't prattle on too much here. No, 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 no. <laughs> you are a, you are, a you are officially my. Yeah, you know, I'm still early in the podcasting thing, but you are officially my longest conversation. Uh, thank you, Doug. We'll talk again. Okay, I Dave. Hope so we Go will too. talk again. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Bye bye.